Welcome once again to the EIE Podcast. My name is Laura Rumbly, and you're listening to episode number 51 in our series. Thanks so much for tuning in. The field of international education encompasses many issues and concerns, but of course, students arguably sit at the center of much of our work. For those of you keen to understand more about the identities and interests of students, specifically in the context of European higher education, I think you'll be very pleased to spend some time with our guest for this episode, Rachel Brooks. Dr. Brooks is a professor of sociology and associate dean for research and innovation for the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Surrey in the UK. She's also the lead author of a book published just this past summer under the title Constructing the Higher Education Student, Perspectives from Across Europe. The book is described by its publisher, Policy Press, as, and I'm quoting here, the first full-length exploration of how Europe's 35 million students are understood by key social actors across different nations. Whether you're an educator, an administrative professional, a student activist, or policymaker, I think you'll find the work of Dr. Brooks and her research team to be both thought-provoking and timely. I hope you enjoy this episode. Rachel, it's wonderful to be speaking with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. We're here to talk about student identities in Europe. And typically, when experts want to understand who students are, they often set out to describe them using common demographic factors, you know, ob objective indicators such as family income, age, level of education in their family, etc. But your recent research on the identities of students in Europe has taken a different approach. And I was wondering if you might be able to kind of briefly talk us through that and why you thought it was important to consider that exploration of student identities through this different lens. Thank you. Yeah, so over the past five years or so, we've been doing quite a big study across Europe about European students' identities and looking at them from different perspectives, because I think the academic literature would suggest that actually the way in which students are talked about, for example, in policy texts or media texts can actually have quite strong implicit messages about what a student is, what they're interested in, what motivates them. But there's been very little empirical research that has tried to, to tease this out in a kind of rigorous and, and systematic way. And so I suppose we started off the assumption that these kind of implicit messages are important because I think they affect the way in which, um, for example, students are talked about in, in public discourse, but also I suppose the implicit understandings that, that members of staff have teaching these students can also affect the pedagogy they use in classrooms, how they treat students and therefore the kind of education that, that students get. So, so really the study was to try and provide robust empirical data about these different understandings, both across different European countries to try to tease out whether you know, there were strong similarities or differences across different European countries, but also within countries as well to look at different kind of stakeholders, different societal groups to see whether they all had the same kind of implicit understanding of what it means to be a student or not. So in each, we had six European countries in our study, England, Ireland, Poland, Spain, Germany and Denmark. And in each of those countries, we looked at the perspectives of, of different stakeholders. So as well as looking at the understandings of students themselves, we also looked at institutional understandings through interviewing higher education staff, those in teaching roles, but also those in management roles, 
We did an analysis of university websites to see what messages were being conveyed through the textual and visual images there. And then with respect to media, we analysed um, stories about students from two different newspapers in each country and also analysed popular films or TV shows that figured students prominently. And then finally, with respect to, to policy, um, we interviewed um, key policymakers in the higher education area in each of those, those six countries but also analysed quite a large number of, of policy texts from each country that um, talked about higher education students in some way. And so I suppose we were interested in commonalities or differences within nation states, but also across nation states within Europe too. What a really interesting study. The, the multidimensional nature of it, I think, is really fascinating and extremely important to consider all those different angles or lenses through which students are considered and understood. So I, I find it really interesting in the European context, the degree to which there is, on the one hand, celebration of diversity and distinctiveness across the region, but at the same time, a lot of rhetoric around commonalities and shared values and shared priorities in different ways. And if we take that to a discussion of students, we might say that there's a common perception that students across Europe share many characteristics and that this ongoing decades-long effort of creating a common higher education space may be a, a consequence of that or a reflection of that. I wonder if your research indicates whether or not students do perceive themselves as similar across Europe and whether or not they see a shared identity as European students as a, a positive thing or not. Yeah, so I think there are kind of two parts to your question, really. First of all, the extent to which their perceptions were similar, and then the kind of the importance of European identity or not. So if I take the first one of those to start with, I think our research demonstrated that in many ways, student perspectives were actually quite similar across our six countries. So for example, many of them were kind of, you know, their identity as a learner was very important and they were really enthusiastic about their studies. They, you know, were working hard and they felt it was important to work hard and that kind of academic identity was important. And we saw that across all six countries. But also, I suppose, again, across all six countries, students tended to have quite a broad understanding of higher education. So it wasn't all about kind of, you know, learning and getting a job afterwards, although those were important to them. It was also about developing as a citizen and developing personally as well and kind of transitioning to, to adulthood. And so we, we found that kind of common across, across the six countries. But also there were some quite interesting national differences too. So, for example, in Germany and Denmark, um, there was still there still appeared to be quite a strong influence of the Humboldtian model of, of higher education. So, for example, students in those two countries, but not in the other four, talked about how being a student, an important part of being a student was having autonomy over the pace at which you studied and the duration of your studies. And I think, you know, that links in quite strongly to the kind of Humboldtian idea of kind of Lernfreiheit, the, the freedom and um, um, autonomy to, to decide about the kind of the pace at which you, you study. And I think, you know, that also links into kind of policy reforms in those countries that have tried to encourage students to move more quickly through their um, degree programmes. And so there was some kind of, you know, criticism of that. But it was really interesting that in the other countries, no students really talked about how an important part of being a student was having that freedom to decide when you learned and the duration of your studies. So that, that was quite interesting. And also in, in Denmark and Germany, but um, to a lesser extent in the other countries, there was a very strong emphasis on higher education not being a kind of, you know, just a kind of discrete period of time, very different from the rest of your life, but an important period for self-development 
but also kind of you know linked to other other important parts of your life um in terms of development of the self and you know a kind of reference to ideas around building in germany and Denels in, in in denmark um which again are kind of an important part of this this humboldtian version of of higher education so although there were important commonalities there were also some of these kind of you know quite strong national differences in some of the kind of you know detail and nuance of what students talked about in relation to their identities super interesting to see it again yeah those differences about the european aspect yeah yeah yeah. so that was something that actually didn't come up very strongly from from the students themselves so we had uh, i haven't really said much about our research methods but we got them to do a kind of plasticine modeling exercise to start with where they were meant to make a model of kind of you know how they uh, understood their their identity and um really when we and then we asked them some quite kind of open ended questions before moving into asking them about specific ways in which students might be seen by others and it was interesting really that only in spain did kind of Europeanness come out at all in those kind of early conversations of the plasticine models? And I think in some ways in Spain, it was um, kind of a, a feeling of perhaps being on the periphery of, of Europe, um, a kind of uh, sense that perhaps they weren't as competitive as, as students elsewhere in Europe in terms of entering the labour market, which, again, I suppose links to some of the kind of academic literature on Spain's sense of kind of, you know, um, I guess linked from, you know, going back to the kind of Franco dictatorship, a sense that, you know, kind of sometimes being perceived as on the periphery of Europe and the European project as being an important means of becoming included with that European community. And so I suppose we saw that coming out a little bit in, in the Spanish students' perspectives. But on the whole, students tended not to kind of, you know, talk much about being a European student as opposed to a student of their, their nation state. But when we looked at the policy texts, there we did see quite a different picture. And that in many of the countries, there was quite a strong positioning of students as Europeans with discussion of Erasmus and other initiatives. And I suppose that was strongest in um, Germany and, and Spain and absent in England and Denmark, which I guess, you know, links into the broader politics of, of Europe within those countries. You know, at the time of our research, England was just kind of, you know, going through the, the Brexit process. And I guess in, in Denmark, there has been quite a lot of Euroscepticism at the kind of national level for quite a while. And so we saw that played out in the policy texts about higher education students that it was really in those four other countries where they were being positioned as Europeans in England and Denmark where they were talked about as kind of you know beyond the nation state it was typically about kind of you know being global graduates being globally competitive not the European frame of reference so that was another interesting sort of national difference I think across the sample. Oh, I, I feel like we, there's so much here we could unpack. And as somebody who did a dissertation 20 years ago on internationalization in the universities of Spain, you know, that thread of a really strong interest in being a part of this European dynamic was present then. And fascinating to me to see it playing out a little bit in, in these ways that you're talking about with the student perspective, but also with the policy documents out of that country in particular. And that brings me to a policy question. You know, you've already alluded to the fact that there can be some discrepancies between the ways that students anyway are talking about who they are and what they're prioritizing potentially in their higher education experiences, as opposed to what policies are being put forward. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that. Any further examples of policy decisions maybe that you find particularly notable in in regard to that distinction of perspectives? And any thoughts about how policymakers might be more effectively informed 
my students' perceptions of their needs and interests. Yeah, that was something that did come through really strongly in our data, actually, this kind of disconnect between the perspectives of students and um, our, our analysis of the kind of key messages from policy texts and our interviews with, with policymakers. And I suppose that was most evident in relation to issues around employability, um, constructing students as, as, as future workers, because I think in, in all six of our countries, that was the dominant way in which students were seen in policy texts. There was you know, so much discussion of the importance of higher education for the labour market. And often very little discussion of students as learners in those texts, which um, you know could be considered a, a little odd. And I think students themselves, although employment was very important to them, there were also, as I kind of mentioned, I suppose earlier on, lots of other things that were important to them too. So they did see higher education as an important preparation for the labour market, but not solely that. And those other things that I talked about, about you know the academic content, learning, intellectual development, developing as a citizen so kind of the societal contribution and also the kind of personal development beyond the sort of you know academic change those were all important to students and so I think there was a kind of much more of a kind of a a broader sense of what higher education is all about than you often get from policy texts which are very very employment focused and I suppose it was interesting that often students brought this up spontaneously themselves, saying that they felt that, that politicians just saw them as future workers and how actually they felt that that was kind of problematic because it undermined the kind of, you know, the other purposes of higher education. Um, so I think, you know, there was a there was a disconnect there. And I think that that did lead to some students, you know, feeling that often policymakers didn't really understand their lives, didn't understand what higher education was all about. And narrowed it in a way that they felt was, you know, was was problematic. And and it might be that, you know, politicians are just making these decisions that they are aware of the, you know, the kind of, you know, the value of higher education more broadly and and, and are making decisions about what they want to prioritise. But I think, you know, um, because of the kind of um, way in which they seem to antagonise students, I would suggest that, you know, giving greater recognition to those broader purposes of higher education would chime in much more with student perspectives and also I suppose you know when we're thinking about encouraging young people to seriously consider university in in the future emphasizing that it's not just about preparing for the labour market if you go to university you're likely to gain a whole range of other you know skills and knowledges it seems kind of to me <laughs> sensible from a policymaker's perspective to, to, to stress those other things too because they are important and they're clearly important to, to students as well. Can we talk just a moment about the students who were involved in the study and your sense that they were representative you know of that broad body of, of millions of, of students across Europe or were they perhaps more inclined to have certain, hold certain positions or have a certain level of knowledge about the systems in which they're operating and and the policy dynamics around them. Yeah, so I think that would be one kind of, you know, potential weakness that I guess, you know, no no social science method is is perfect. And, you know, ultimately, we did ask for volunteers to take part in this project. But I think what we tried to do was, um, you know, kind of aware of those kinds of issues, we did try and get a diverse sample as possible. So I should say that we only talked to undergraduate students, not postgraduate students, and we excluded international students from our sample. But beyond that, we tried to reflect the demographics of the university as much as possible in terms of kind of you know gender mix disciplinary mix um, and other kind of social characteristics and identity markers like that and then we also um, we also kind of paid the students by giving them a voucher 
culture. And I suppose the reason for doing that was to kind of incentivize, you know, people to, to volunteer, but also perhaps to get people who are a bit more motivated by instrumental things rather than just the, the love of learning and wanting to be part of the academic community. So I would say we were aware of those potential limitations and we did try quite hard to, to counteract them. However, I think that is probably, you know, a legitimate question to ask is, is the sample that we ended up with truly representative of the student body across Europe? And it might be that, you know, we have people there who are just keener to talk about these issues than perhaps other people. So, so I think that is, a, you know, a legitimate question to ask. But I think even so, you know, the fact that, a lot of the, the findings were common across all of the students in our in our six nations does suggest that, you know, even if they're not necessarily the most representative of students, there is still kind of a, quite a commonality of feeling. Because I think, you know, across our sample, we did, you know, talk to quite a large number of students across across Europe. And I suppose that the similarity of their perspectives was was notable, I think. Absolutely. And as you say, even just the, the content of the issues that they kicked up brings up really important questions that clearly somebody has these, these feelings and these perceptions and they need to be questioned further. So I think that's really, really quite interesting. Now, I don't know if your research got into this or if this is even a relevant question for you, but we got to thinking in preparation for speaking with you that students have ideas not only about who they are, but also about who they could be or should be based on role models, you know, perceived societal expectations. And maybe that does connect a little bit to the forces that they seem to be feeling about uh, workforce preparedness, you know, that type of thing. I wonder, as you've been thinking about all this material that you've collected in these conversations that you've had with colleagues about your work, what can university professionals do to support students in achieving the various aspirations that they might have, while at the same time, if not protecting them, somehow guiding them in relation to some of these really unhealthy or unrealistic expectations that society may be bombarding them with at this time? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting question. I suppose in relation to kind of, you know, university staff, again, we saw in most countries a slight difference of perspective between these students who, you know, again, were interested in, in, in the labour market, that was important to them, but equally, you know, did put a lot of emphasis on the importance of their studies, how much they were enjoying that, how much they were changing as a result of the intellectual content of their degrees. But I suppose from the staff perspective, there was typically a view that, you know, students these days are not the same as in the past, they're much more instrumental, and it's only the labour market that they're interested in, and, you know, they're not genuinely interested in the learning. So, I mean, I take your point about perhaps these students not being the most representative, but equally, you know, we are talking about kind of strong feelings amongst those we did talk to. And so I suppose our suggestion is that, you know, perhaps university staff need not to make such kind of generalizations about about students the fact that you know um that they're not they're clearly not all instrumental in their approach to learning they're clearly not just completely focused on the end result and their entry to the labor market so i think there are some messages about pedagogy in, in universities and about some of the assumptions about of teaching staff that, that maybe those do need to be questioned um, and to recognise that actually, you know, many students are genuinely interested in the academic content of their programmes. They are interested in making a wider societal contribution. It's not all about a kind of an individual end goal of getting a, a good job. So I think that certainly kind of I think in the UK, a lot of what we do in universities now is kind of premised on this view that, you know, it is getting a job, good job at the end that students want and they will be quite instrumental in their behaviour to get that. And I 
think, you know, our, our research does throw that a little bit into question that actually, you know, students do have perhaps a more rounded understanding of higher education than, than some staff think. So I think there are some kind of lessons for us in universities there. But then I suppose that the second point um, that you asked about, about kind of protecting students from these kinds of um, constructions. I mean, I think, you know, again, perhaps giving students space to, to talk about them so they can realise that, you know, they're perhaps not the only one who's feeling that, you know, this is an helpful way of, of talking about students. So kind of sharing those, those experiences. But I also think our data suggests that, you know, students find that kind of annoying and in some ways kind of undermining. But equally, there's also evidence of them kind of, you know, being able to resist those and being able to contest those. So, again, I think, you know, we, we shouldn't see students as kind of completely passive um, in, in from the face of these kind of more negative um, constructions. So I think perhaps instead of protecting um, students, it's more about trying to change the national debate or the public discourse about students. And I think, you know, that can be achieved by giving students a greater voice in public life so that, you know, the media, policymakers, the public at large gain a, perhaps a better understanding of what life is like as a student in, in contemporary society. So some of those kind of, you know, broader issues can be kind of surfaced through that. So I suppose that that's what I would suggest that perhaps we need to give greater attention to, to the lived experiences of, of students so that, you know, we can hear their voice and their perspectives a little bit more often than is often the, the case. Because I think that was another thing that came up across the six countries, students feeling that actually they as students didn't really have much voice in public debate about, you know, about a whole range of issues. That, that is something the student voice that the EAE has been digging into more and more, I want to say, in the last couple of years, really listening to the perspectives of these remarkably engaged, intelligent, excited, and committed students that are around us that are really wanting to be part of the conversation and have so much to offer in terms of our improvements um, in higher education. I know that when I get to the end of a big research project, I find myself sitting with a, a series of, of unanswered questions and new directions that I would love to work in if I had all the time and resources at my disposal. And I was wondering if there were maybe one or two angles or questions or parts of the story that you might be currently pursuing, or if you just could in, in an ideal world, you would, what those would be. Yeah, so I think it's, it's thrown up a lot of issues. I, one of the things is about kind of international students, because as I mentioned, we kind of excluded them from the sample because we felt that the, the issues might actually be quite different for, for international students. But another strand of my work is about international student mobility. And so I suppose, you know, that was something that I was always wondering, kind of, you know, um, how international students would be constructed within these six nations. Would they be constructed in, in different ways and by different stakeholders? So I think that's something that, you know, I thought quite a bit about, but we didn't um, have an opportunity to, to research. And the other thing that um, I thought about, and actually um, I've put in a, a research proposal to look at this, is I suppose the relationship between um, parents and students um, across Europe, because that did crop up a little bit that, for example, in Spain, where students typically um, live in the parental home um, for the duration of their studies, and the state has an expectation that parents will support their students through their university. Whereas in countries um, such as England and Denmark, students are seen as much more kind of um, personally responsible for their, um, their time in higher education, either through receiving a state grant in Denmark or through taking out a personal loan in, in England. 
And I think those relationships between students and their parents might have quite a significant impact on how they understand, you know, being a university student. Am I a kind of an adult um, because I've got financial responsibility for myself? Am I a dependent? And so, so I suppose we didn't really have a lot of chance to explore those kinds of family dynamics. Um, and, and I suppose also the way in which kind of being a student may impact on your family if you're all living at, at home. So those kinds of reciprocal influences are something that came up a little bit in our data, but we really didn't, you know, we, we, we weren't doing interviews with family members, um, you know, so that wasn't something we were able to explore in in any depth but it's something that I'd be interested to to explore in the future because I think in Europe today we do still see different assumptions about the role of the family in in national life and I I suppose my hunch is that that does have an impact on students' experiences of of higher education so that's something I'd like to to explore further in the future too. Well I can imagine that those questions could keep you busy for a long time and I hope they do because I think the answers that could come out of those explorations would be really really fascinating. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about what you've been up to and uh, helping us understand a bit more about what's going on with students across Europe. That was Rachel Brooks, Professor of Sociology and Associate Dean for Research and Innovation for the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at the University of Surrey in the UK, and lead author of Constructing the Higher Education Student, Perspectives from Across Europe. For information on how to access the publication we discussed with Dr. Brooks and for other relevant EAIE resources, please check out our session notes for this episode. And of course, there are many other ways that the EAIE can support your work with students. For example, right around the corner from now, the EAIE's Autumn Online Academy will be offering training courses on designing learning outcomes for traineeships abroad and getting the best out of your summer school and short-term programs in ways that put your students at the heart of both planning and implementation. Please visit the EIE website, www.eie.org, to learn more about these and other upcoming training opportunities. Thanks again for listening to the EIE podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we'd be thrilled if you could like or share us with your colleagues near and far. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks' time. For now, all good wishes to you from the EIE.